Let's jump right into lesson five. Here's where we've been talking and what we've been discussing. I'm going to start with our key scripture, Matthew chapter 25. We're going off of this every week. Here it is. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and the nations will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep at his right hand, the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom. This is what we've been holding on to that's been prepared from you, for you from the foundation of the world. And then we've been holding on to Job 38, 33. God questions Job. Do you know the laws of the universe that they and can you use them to regulate the earth? One of the things we've been talking about over the last several weeks studying the kingdom of God is that God has placed laws over the universe and that those laws regulate the universe and his kingdom. It is my belief that the kingdom of God has been established being prepared for us at the beginning of time. Before time ever existed, the kingdom was already in God's mind. The kingdom did not show up when Jesus started preaching about it. The kingdom was already here, and it's my belief that God laid out the pattern of what the kingdom was, that the kingdom of God was the government of God. It is the way God is going to govern earth, and we've established that the kingdom of God is the government of God. How does God govern people? How does he govern angels in the spirit world? How does he govern nations? And how will he end government at the end when the king comes? So we've gone through 12 things we're going to be looking at. Because what we're establishing is, can you establish and know the laws that regulate the universe? And it's my belief that those laws were the limits that God set. And I brought out 12 areas we're going to study we looked at the spirit world, what went on and what we learned about God in the spirit world. This is what we learned. He's the most high. He's the righteous God, the holy God, God of truth, and he's the judge. And then we jumped into the created world. Uh, we looked at the seven days of creation and what happened, and this is what we found, that everything has to give an account to obey God, to be fruitful, to be formed, and to be filled. And this is where we've landed on where we're headed tonight. We're going to be going one more deep in, and here's the thought. Here's what we know about the kingdom of God so far. Number one, God is most high and judge of all created things. That's what we learned when we studied the government in the spirit world. When we came into the created world, we found out that God's word is his authority. He established creation and upholds all things by the power of his word. So as we begin to say, well, what is the government of God? If we baseline it to the first most uh, simplistic ways, we would say the government of God is that he's in charge, he's most high, he judges everything, and his word is his authority. We're going to come into the third realm tonight. This is our teaching. We're going to look at the Garden of Eden. It is a strange uh, topic, the garden. It's, uh, I think, probably... It's demeaned in the sense of all the pictures we have of the garden. Because typically what you see is a naked man with a fig leaf, a naked woman with fig leaves, and a snake above their head with a tree and an apple. And so it really just shrinks it all down into our thinking, if we're not careful, into a little garden about the size of your backyard. And a snake that hangs out in a tree with an apple tree. And, and so if we're not careful... When we talk about the kingdom from the scope of the Garden of Eden, it can really shrink it down to miss what God is doing and why in the world would God see the need to plant a garden to prove anything? Uh, and why would he hem in man into the garden? Why would he place them in it, wall them up in it, put a, put a gate on it, and tell them to take care of it? And I'm going to do my best to teach you tonight why I think the Garden of Eden is an insight into the government of God's kingdom and what God is attempting to do. Let's jump in. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living person. And the Lord God, here it is, planted a garden toward the east in Eden 
So the Garden of Eden is not a garden that was named Eden. It was a garden that was planted in the land of Eden. So after God created the universe, whoever's writing, we believe it was Moses writing Genesis, that he had the revelation that God put the garden into a land called Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed, verse 9 of Genesis 2. And out of the ground the Lord God caused every tree to grow that is pleasing in the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you deep dive to study it out, you will find after hours and hours of Google searches and videos and Wikipedia and historical accounts, nobody knows where the Garden of Eden was. Uh, I've read every account possible. Where could it be? I have my thoughts. I'll share a few of them with you. All the way into northern Africa, uh, Botswana. There are people that believe the Garden of Eden was in Botswana and they've done genetic research that they were the first people to ever live. And everybody has conjectures. Here's what we know. It is impossible to know where God put the Garden of Eden because once the worldwide flood came, the tree of life was gone, the angel that guarded it was gone, the sword that kept it was gone, the rivers that surrounded it were gone, and we just have to start all over and everything becomes a conjecture. So here's a few conjectures. Here's the Middle East, and in the Middle East... uh, Jordan all the way down, I taught this in the book of Genesis, all the way down in the corner there, you will find that's where many people believe uh, that the Garden of Eden was located. So quite a significant way from Jerusalem where we would hold on to. And I pulled it out in a map where Kuwait is presently. That's where many people believe the Garden of Eden was. And if you study it, most people kind of land there, even though it's all conjecture. Uh, They kind of land that in the corner tip right there by Kuwait, that is where the Garden of Eden was. We're going to land on, we have no clue, and would it really matter? Because if it mattered that much, the geography of it, it would seem that either God would have told us exactly where or it would still have been around after the flood. So whatever God wanted to communicate, he needed to communicate it pre-flood. Because once the flood is over, the only thing we'll have left of the Garden of Eden is a memory of eight people. And they didn't even live in the Garden of Eden. They would only know about it because it had been passed down from Adam through his children down to Noah. And that was about, I think, 1,400 years from Adam. So he'd not even Noah knows. And then you fast forward into Moses, and then Moses is going to tell the story based on a revelation. So here's what we could assume. If God downloaded it to Moses and didn't tell Moses the exact location, then maybe God just says, look, the location doesn't matter. But what I did inside the location when it was here is what we need to jump on. And that's what we're going to look at. Here's my first assumption of the garden. This stole this straight out of our teaching in Genesis But I thought it was worthy to say again. The purpose of God planting a garden will serve to illustrate that in him all things exist. It was a garden that Adam was placed in. And it will serve that everything that's ever needed flows from being planted in the boundaries of his wisdom. So what we're going to learn tonight that we're going to learn that first off God is most high in judge. Second off his word is of authority. And third off. His wisdom is life. And we have to establish before we ever try to figure out what is Jesus saying in the parables? What is the kingdom definition in the Old or New Testament? What is the kingdom to come when Jesus comes back in the millennial kingdom? We can never define it outside of defining what is the wisdom of God. And it was inside the garden that God is going to reveal something that carries forth his wisdom, and out of that wisdom comes life. Now, here's my thinking of what I want to just talk about and give you a little insight. I'm not going to teach all of these. We'll touch them in the weeks ahead. It's my belief that everything God did from heavenly to human, he put boundaries and limits, measurements on everything. He measured, I believe, I'll show you this, the Garden of Eden. The ark was measured 450 by 75 by 45. He measured the Ten Commandments. He put commands on a stone. 
The tabernacle had very definitive measurements and the Holy of Holies had very definitive measurements. When God measured, it was purposeful. It wasn't just something haphazard inside of every measurement. And I think it's going to be interesting. My belief is every one of those measurements, here's what's interesting, gets narrower and narrower and narrower. As we come through the Bible, the Garden of Eden, but I believe the ark was lower than Eden. The Ten Commandments could fit in a chest. The tabernacle uh, was, you know, outside what they shrunk it into a tent and then inside the tent, the Holy of Holies. I believe all of it was God moving us toward, this is what I'm going to teach Sunday, moving us toward that out of every confinement of his wisdom comes life because he's ultimately going to confine himself into the womb of a woman. But out of the confinement of a womb of a woman, which is the wisdom of God in a virgin birth, will flow the life of God. So if we're not careful, everything we look at, the Garden of Eden, oh my God, a snake that got kicked out. The ark, oh my God, he built it, everybody died on earth. Oh my God, the Ten Commandments, he threw it down, everybody blew up and the stones blew up and they disobeyed it. If we're not careful... We take away from the limits of God the disasters that ensued when people broke his wisdom rather than the life that was inside of it when people obeyed his wisdom. So the reason he places limits is to teach humans that life only flows within the limits of his wisdom. In other words, God never intended for you to be a free-for-all. Life flows out of being planted in wisdom. It's one reason the local church is so powerful. I know we can say we don't really need church. We can just stay home and read our Bible. But that's human wisdom. God confines you into a local group of people, plants your life inside those people, confines you in so you can't just run the world because in that group of people where you're confined... The life of God will manifest in you as we serve one another, as we rub each other raw, as we disciple each other, as we call each other to maturity. So that's one thing God is going to begin to teach us. But here's what we want to do. We want to define the boundary of the Garden of Eden. And by the boundary, what is the limit of God's wisdom that he puts forth? That he's got to get these humans to know. And here, let's read it. And the Lord God, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. Now something very interesting here. The woman was not placed in the garden. The man was. The woman, according to the story, will be birthed after the fact. So God makes a garden in Eden puts the male human in the garden. He takes care of it, tends it, and cultivates it, realizes, oh, the animals don't do it for me. God puts him to sleep, creates a woman. So in that is a huge kingdom thing that we're going to learn tonight. Why did God not make man and woman and put them in there together? Why did he put the man in and then out of the man create the woman? Once you learn it, everything in the New Testament about women and men And marriage begins to make beautiful sense, and we'll try to understand it. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things, to cultivate it. So what we're going to learn first is that the boundary of the Garden of Eden, and there's no way around this, is that God is a God of expectations, God is not just going for, all I want you to do is love me. I don't care what you do, just love me. There was an expectation that came out of heaven on the first human, and it couldn't have been an expectation to know you were loved because there was no hate there. There was no sin there yet. The command to cultivate and tend didn't come out of proving love. It simply came out of a duty that God's kingdom has expectations placed upon the subjects of his kingdom. By the time Jesus comes, it's a commandment. If you love me, show me by what you do. The expectation is still there. The perversion is 
It doesn't matter what you do. Just love him. He just wants to know, do you love him? Because he loves you. And that is one of the most perversions of the gospel. It's when we just go, just know God loves you and you love him. And I go, go all the way back to Eden. If it was that, it would have been, hey, Adam, I love you, buddy. You love me. Good. Just let everything go to pot now. You got a job to do. Now, I'm all for salvation is absolutely free. There's nothing in the world you can do to earn the right to be saved. But once you say, I do, and you put the ring of his spirit on your finger, if you don't work, you're worse than an infidel. If you don't serve his kingdom, you're no better than a lost person. And that's the lie that's being propagated that we can just do anything we want as long as we love God. And the expectation is, oh, no, 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 because here's, here's what happens as we, as we read it out. I think it's interesting. The word cultivate, it means to labor, to do work, or to serve as a subject, or to make oneself a servant. Nothing brilliantly deep about that. Except before there was ever a human being other than Adam. The thought was, there's a job where you serve me. I don't serve you. You work for me. I don't work for you. That's the thinking. The thinking in the New Testament is carried out with kind of words that are because they say things like, I'm a bond slave. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I am a servant and he is my master. In other words, it's not even up for an opinion. You simply do whatever the master tells you to do. We don't sit around a cup of coffee and go, hey, listen, I have an idea. What do you think? That's not even the way the kingdom works. Now fast forward to a generation that believes we command God to do things by faith. In the name of Jesus, I command this and I command that. Nothing wrong with that. But if we're not careful, we suddenly think he works for us and we control the genie lamp. And if we rub good enough, he's here to serve me. He's not here to serve me. He served me on the cross. The rest of the story is me going, what do you want out of me? I will die to me, bow down to my flesh, whatever you want me to do, tell me what to do. Now, the moment I step into that equation, something weird, he empowers me to do it. So we have to know there's no way to talk about the kingdom except that it's going to demand you to serve. Now I don't know where the I don't know where the local church went wrong that we give you options. Well, if you want to serve, we don't want to wear you out. We don't want you to do too much. Matter of fact, we just want you to sit and pray and see where you fit. What? Do you think I sat down with my children and said, "Now, I just want you to go to your bedroom?" And I want you to just pray and let the Lord tell you what chores to do. Not one of them would have come back with a chore. They'd have been, the Lord hadn't spoke to me yet, Daddy. And I said, okay, well then I will speak in the name of the Lord. You will do the dishes. You will iron the clothes, whatever it would be. You will mow the grass. God's kingdom is the same way because what we end up with are spoiled children who want to sit in the house but not work. Let me throw this to you just to help you. And there's no glory in that. You don't serve so hope I'm going to get something back or a pat on the back or an accolade or an end-of-the-year plaque that says I served really well. That's what we do to try to give you value to serve. We praise you and we clap, which is good. We're human. We like it. I like it. But the reality is who's going to clap for Adam? You're going to work for me. All right, well, I'm not going to anything here. No, it's just me and you, buddy. I just need you to tend. Nobody's going to praise you here. It's just you work for me. And we know the end of the story. The lady's going to come, and I'll give you that in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) The word tend. 
The word tend means you need to keep it within the bounds. Guard it. Keep watch over it. The word watchman, you will find that in the book of Ezekiel and many times through the Old Testament that God places watchmen on the wall to protect it. Now this is weird. So you tell me you're God, you're most high, that's what we've learned, you're all powerful, you defeated all the spirit world, you made the created world, you put me in a little box called Eden, you tell me that I'm to take care of it and work and mow and weed and whatever I have to do down here, and then you want me to protect it? You protect it. You're big. Don't give me the responsibility to protect the thing. Which is why Genesis 3 said, and the beast of the field, he was more subtle than any beast of the field, which tells you it really wasn't Eve that was the biggest issue right now. The biggest issue is Adam failed to protect what God gave him by wisdom because the beast of the field found his way into the garden. How? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says, now the beast of the field was more subtle than any and began to talk to the woman. You're like, what? How did he get in here? Yes, she was deceived, but long before she was deceived, somewhere Adam either thought, I don't need to protect it. This is God's garden. I don't, I don't have to watch over it. I can just have sex with this naked woman. This is wonderful, and we can kind of hoe and you know, eat some fruit and play with the animals. But what it tells me, here's just an opinion. There's a lot of preaching points. Ah. Here's what the issue is today. We have a lot of people who want to who just play God by coming to church, but they're not protecting the wisdom of God. And we've turned sloppy, and the enemy has gotten in the middle of the camp, and the enemy's destroying marriages, and the enemy's destroying churches, and the enemy's destroying denominations because we've forgotten to protect the truth. And now we're juggling truth, playing games, demanding God do things for us. Stop that hurricane in the name of Jesus. He may, and we can pray that. I serve him. So God, here's a hurricane coming. What do you want me to do? How do you stand out? Mark, I need you to pack and leave town. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to leave town. I want to stand on the ocean and command it. But if I start commanding without the wisdom... I'm probably going to get blown away. And it's not God's fault. Because I can't command outside of the wisdom. I have to stay in the wisdom. To, and if I'm in the wisdom, I'm a servant. So I can only command what I've been told to command. Which is why Jesus will say, I can only say what I've heard Daddy say. Well, wait, you're the son of a living God. You could cast out every demon and raise every dead person. No, I can't. Well, if you're God, I am God. Well, then you could just tell every dead person to come up. No, I can't. Why? Because I'm not God out of the scope of my father's wisdom. It's why you and I don't have the power to go to Wellstar and stand in the lobby and go, I command every sick person to come out of here in the name of Jesus. And then wait. Do you know, to my knowledge, not one Christian has ever done that? Even if we had great faith, why? Because we're bound to his wisdom. Now, if God shows up tonight, I need you to go to Wellstar and stand in the lobby and command everybody, come, I'm going to blow their mind. Go. Even if you look dumb. Because when you're in the wisdom parameters, you have power. So whatever happened in the parameters of Eden where life was, he, the man, forgot to protect it. Here's what we find about Eden. Everybody serves. I'm not here to put you down. I love you. I think you're wonderful, sweet people. If you come here to this church, wonderful. If you go elsewhere, wonderful. But my Lord God, serve. Amen. We don't need people just sitting in a chair, keeping the chair warm, feeling good about yourself because you checked the religious box that I attended. Wherever you go, bust hump to help. Amen. It's expected of us. All of us. 
It's why when I walk up, pastor, I have no special parking. I've got no special place to run. I walk up. Oh, I see. Oh, man, there's dirt on the floor. I'll grab a broom. I'll sweep up the dirt. Because at the end of the day, I may be the boy that stands in the pulpit, but I'm serving him. And I'm not beyond picking up a mop, picking up a piece of paper, flushing a toilet, getting stopped up toilet out. I'm not beyond that at all. I count it an honor. I'm here to serve the Lord. And if I get to preach in the midst of it, thank God, I hope you love it. But at the end of the day, I'll climb up on a rafter. I'll dust a light. I'll empty trash. I'll go over to the nursery and do do doo-doo diapers. I don't care. I got no ego in this game. I'm not looking to see who follows me on Instagram, how many people like what I like. I am here to serve the Lord God Almighty and whatever he wants me to do, I will do it. And if I get patted on the back, thank you. And if somebody blesses me, thank you. But if I get a dad blame, nothing. I stand with my shoulders held high, proud to serve the king, proud to call myself a servant and a slave of the Lord God. It's the least you can do. If we, and just think what would happen if every church had that. We wouldn't be sitting around, I'm just so burned out, my back hurts. I've opened the door for 42 years straight. Can't find nobody to work in the nursery. Everybody hates babies, but old women. Uh, that's why people are so burned out. Nobody stands and tells you you're obligated to serve. Well, I don't feel called. Neither do I. You just serve. Adam went like, I don't feel called to do the garden. I don't care. I created you and put you in it. Serve me. That's, that's plenty of preaching. Everybody works. Everybody works. Serve, what's the difference? Serve, you've been gifted to do something. Work, we don't care if you're gifted or not. Grab a towel and get busy. Well, I'm just not anointed to do that. Well, I don't care if you are or not. We're not talking anointing. We're just talking good old-fashioned work. Well, nobody pays me. Right. That's absolutely right. It's free. Serving is what you've been gifted to do with a talent. Sing, uh, rock babies, do design work, fix things. Work is just pick up a towel. If there's, if there's a mess on the floor, don't wait on an usher. Well, I'll just wait on No, you are the usher. You've just uh, inaugurated yourself, pick up a towel, work. And then the final one, God, where would we be today if we protected each other? If you didn't talk trash about me and I didn't talk trash about you, however, we don't do that mean we do it in the name of the Lord in prayer. I just think you really need to pray for the pastor. Just have a sense in me that he's, mm, let's just pray for him now. Right? Protect each other. I'm a human. You, you don't think I'm going to make a mistake? Or, or be just a human being that, uh, dear God, I, I, I listened to a message I teach 20 years ago and thought, my God, he, God should have killed me. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I believe that. I actually said that and God didn't kill me. How, right? I mean, yeah, but when I was preaching it, I was all 22 years old. Ah, and I listened back 30 years ago. Who listens to that? My God. So, I mean, we're all human. There's, I'm going to irritate you sometime. You're going to be in the middle of talking and I'll just walk off. I don't mean to. It's not like I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to see if I can hurt your feelings. But you know why most churches fold up and split and start First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist, First Methodist, Second Methodist, and Methodist down the street of the Methodist? Why everybody, and then we do it in, well, God's called me to go elsewhere. No, he didn't. You got mad. You wanted to go somewhere else. You got ticked off. You didn't want to sit and grow, so you found another group of people to get mad at. But what would happen if we protected each other? So you're a jerk. I love you. Let's grow. Let's get over it. It's how we do it. It's what would tell the world there's something different about us. Because we do hurt each other's feelings, but I'm not going anywhere. And I'm not going to talk about them. And I'm not going to say anything. They're my brother in Christ. So that's the expectation. And here's the funny thing. There wasn't even anybody in the garden when God gave this. That's how powerful it is. He didn't give it as a reaction to problems. He gave it as a system of government. You're going to serve. There's nobody to serve. True. True. 
you're going to work by myself. There was nothing really there to cause problems. There's no in-laws. Nothing. There's no, there's no pastor of the other church. There's no, no preacher he can be mad at. There's not another church on the other side of the garden that he used to attend. He just has to be given. I'm just going to run through some scriptures just to tell you that this is not just a kingdom thing and I'm trying to teach. It's a system of government. It even plays itself out in the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus says the greatest shall be. It's not up for an opinion. You want to be great, serve each other. I wonder what would happen to our finances and our families and our health if we all just died to self and started serving each other. Everything I have is yours. Everything you have is mine. And we're not going to screw each other over. We're going to serve each other. It even goes further in Galatians. It almost sounds like Paul has picked up on something. You were called to freedom. You were called to serve each other in the green. Oh, dear Lord, humans in the blue. But if you bite and devour each other, you will be consumed by each other. He's letting us know that the enemy knows that the local church is so powerful. If I can get you biting each other, I can destroy a church. If I can cause you to stop serving each other, if I can cause you to start protect, stop protecting each other, I will kill a church. Because I'll get the people that serve mad at the people who don't. And then I'll get them burned out. And then I'll get you in your flesh and you'll start biting and devouring each other wondering why nobody helps you around here. Nobody ever called you. And then I just back away as the devil and sit in a parking lot and wait for Believer's Church to destroy itself. That's how it works. Here's a scripture, one final one. <clears throat> Hold on, he says, to wholesome teaching. Verse 14 of 2 Timothy 1. Carefully guard the truth. You see, we don't have a Garden of Eden to guard today. We have to guard truth. And what has happened, young people, you're seeing a generation of Christians who stopped guarding the truth and now we've got all kind of chaotic, sinful hell birthed out right in the middle of what is called Christianity. We're ordaining lesbians, gays, trans. We're having queer drag queen day in churches. And you look at that and go, dear God, what happened? It's not that the devil showed up. He has been here the whole time. It's not suddenly the devil thought, I think I'm just ready to do a drag queen show in the middle of a church. What do y'all think we could do to really upset those people? I got an idea. Let's do a drag queen show. Oh, that's good. I never thought about that. No, the reason it's happening is men of God stopped protecting the house of God and we stopped guarding the truth and we started serving flesh and welcome to American church. We served flesh rather than guarded the truth. And the reason that is, is we got more... Oh God, I feel like I'm going somewhere I don't need to go, but I'm going there anyway. We In, in about the year 1990... We shifted away from good, deep teaching and we moved people to music. And the local church started becoming very centri centrifuged around music. You, I don't know if you remember, you had to be there. It, it was like we went from deep teaching, 1970s, 80s, and 90s, deep. Man, it just blow your head. God, these teachers. And then all of a sudden, the teachers just dwindled down. And the music got longer and louder and darker and more smoke. And the preacher just sat over in the corner as we would just sing. And then we even got so excited. Oh, we just sang the whole day. We didn't even preach. Woo! Mm. Morning was so thick, the preacher didn't even preach today. And I'm thinking, what in God's name are you talking about? So if you want to go two hours of music, then sit down and shut up and give the teacher two hours. Otherwise, we get really out of balance. And we know all the songs, but we don't guard the truth. I will present to you, there are a lot of young people who know all the music of the day and zero doctrine. That's it. I feel like I'm mad, and I'm not mad at all. Genesis 2. Let's go back. We're back to the garden to try to figure out what's going on now. The Lord God took the man. This is going to sting, so I'm giving you a warning. 
So this is warning. You're about to get branded. I'm going to do it nice. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't mean it mean. It just hurts. I, <laughs> while I was studying, I was going, God, I don't want to say that. Yeah, it hurts. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. There was our scripture. This is weird. And God warned who? He didn't warn a woman. There's not a woman yet. Let's don't get too mad at Eve. Before she was even made, God gave the old boy a warning. Here's the warning. Eat what you want. Don't eat that. If you do, you die. It's his job to carry that warning to the next generation. So by the time Eve gets there, the old boy forgot the warning. Maybe it's because he saw her breasts and the warning went out the door. It's like, oh my God, what in a woman. Whoa, and the warning just goes, key, 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 key. It's like he's not even thinking warning. He's thinking blessing. This is the blessing of the Lord that maketh rich and add no sorrow. And they go create babies. There's little babies running everywhere. Because one thing I know is that how easy it is to get distracted from the warning when you're chasing the pleasure. And we can never have so much pleasure that we forget there's a warning attached. So before I gave you a naked woman, before I told you to have sex with her and populate the entire earth and get giddy, I needed to give you a warning. But I knew if I gave you a warning after I gave you the woman, you'd have never paid attention to me. So I gave you the warning first. What it's going to teach me, though, is that if I'm not careful, my faith will chase pleasure and forget the warning. And one thing about the kingdom, it doesn't preach well. There is always a warning hanging out there. You're going to be judged one day. And I know that doesn't preach well in this generation. I know the whole judgment doesn't go well. It doesn't pack out the house to tell everybody you're going to be judged one day. But lo and behold, let us never get so comfortable with telling the world they're loved and that God will bless them with houses and cars and lands and weddings and businesses and jobs that we forget to go, oh, there is still a warning. Just kind of looming out here. So God gives in the warning. Now, what I'm going to share with you, you don't have to believe it. I'm inclined to believe it, so I put it out there, but I'm also inclined to say it's my opinion of what I've reasoned Scripture. I'll throw it to you. You chew on it. If you like it, great. Take it. If you don't, good. That's healthy. All right? So pick this up. God gave the man the warning to heed his wisdom before the woman arrived. Regardless of what modern culture tells us today, God placed a high warning and demand on the male human that it was the male that was to protect his wisdom. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, it's going to play out in those weird verses. Women keep silent, don't say anything. Shh, I forbid you to teach. So before you ever try to figure out what that is, you need to go all the way back to a warning given to a man before a woman ever existed. It was the male's job to protect the wisdom of God. It's his job. I'm going to take it a little deeper. If that be true, that it is the job of God, before, again, I keep going to this, before there was a woman to say, woman, keep quiet. You ought not say nothing. Now we know that can't be necessarily true because women are by nature smarter than men. So it's not a level of who's smarter. And the way we know that is your mama raised you. Your daddy would have killed you. Women have an intuition men don't have. Women see things men don't see. It's why God had to give the brother help. He, he would have never got it. He'd have just sat there eating. Just 
just doing nothing. He had to bring a woman in to go, look, there's a job. Y'all got to multiply, do all this. Remember the warning, stay in my wisdom. So by the time you come to the New Testament, this is where I hope it makes sense. Let me tell you what I believe. And I've been asked this a billion times. Do I believe that women can teach the Bible? And on the surface, I say, my mother does. But that doesn't mean it's right. She's a great Bible teacher. Well, that doesn't mean I can just overlook women should keep quiet. And I would never tell her because she wouldn't buy me any more shoes. <laughs> Woman, keep quiet. Mother, you buy me some more pants? No, you told me to be quiet. My wife, Robin, spoke on Sunday. So we, I, in this church, believes that God equally can anoint women and use women and uh, use women to do his kingdom. Then why in God's name do we say women should keep quiet? Well, I'm going to give you my take. Paul tells Timothy, women should learn quietly and submissively. This is what men take and just use it and abuse it. I don't let women teach. But every pastor will let you keep the nursery. We'll let you cook the chili. We'll let you do womenly stuff. But you can't get up here a foot above men. This is holy. Now you want to go out there and open a door. You women are good for that. But Paul says, oh, well, a woman ought not ever teach a man. Well, if that be true, every school would shut down because most schools are women teachers. And then I'd say, well, they can teach children. Oh, my God, okay. So at 18, a woman needs to shut up. Because you can teach them up to 18, but once they turn a man, women have to shut up. It doesn't really play out. It, it feels good to preach it. Because when women get loud, we call you Jezebel. And then we tell you to shut up and we quote a scripture. It makes us feel good and powerful, and men have abused it. They've abused women. Husbands have abused it. They've made women serve. They've abused the wife in the name of submission. They've perverted it. Why? Because humans pervert wisdom. But let's see if we can figure it out. Second, or 1 Corinthians 14. Women should be silent during the church meetings. <laughs> now, don't, don't take it too far. It doesn't mean that they can't even say hello. You walk in, all the women just, hey, what's wrong? And so it can't be they can't say anything. So I just tell them to be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. And then again, we abuse it. They should be submissive. Put on your little aprons, go to the kitchen, clean up, work in the cafe, take care of the babies. Us men got a job to run. We got a church to build. If they have any questions, they should go home and ask who. Now, the moment the Greek pulls in that we're not just talking about women, all women, we're talking about women who are married women. Married women. Because what about single women? Who do they, do they have to get married before they can ask a question? Listen, I'll be out in the foyer. I had a question about the preacher, but we got to be quiet. I have to ask our husband, would you marry me? <laughs> oh, this question's just burning in my heart. If you would go home and marry me, we could have sex. I'll ask a question. We'll be done. We'll annul it after the question. I mean, that's the lunacy of it. Now, the problem with that is we're 2,000 years removed looking back, trying to determine culture, trying to say denominations have determined what women can and cannot do. But Paul is not looking presently in the culture. Paul is looking back to the beginning. And at the beginning of time, it wasn't that women should keep quiet. It's my belief that sin entered the world because Adam didn't take his role as protector of God's wisdom. The way a man protects God's wisdom is he is the one to teach it to the next generation. And God never lets the man off the hook. It is the man's job 
to take the wisdom of God to the next generation. It's not the woman's job. Can they do it? Absolutely. But God holds the man accountable. He's the one that has been told to take the warning to the next generation. And what we have today is we have men in the pulpit telling women to be quiet, but women do the majority of stuff in the church because men didn't, not just become men, men stopped protecting God's wisdom. They started chasing money, they chased women, they chased fame, they chased work, they let the wife take the kids to church while they work hard, they let all the other things go while they just sit and cross their arms and let some preacher preach and write a check and then they leave and they do their business and they work and they hunt and they fish and they do their hobbies and they provide the money and then the wife gets the kids ready and takes them to church and then the wife ends up in my office begging that her husband would serve the Lord or come to church with her because he just won't do it and what Paul was telling him this is my take you don't have to believe it I'm just going to throw it to you it's my my translation ladies it's not your job to take the wisdom to the next generation it is your husband's job And the reason you're wanting to ask questions is because they've usurped the protection of God's authority and the men aren't doing anything. So therefore, go home and demand him to pony up and answer your questions about the kingdom. It wasn't that he was scared a woman would say something or scared that a woman could stand up and go, let me give you some wisdom. It's that the men were just sitting there casually while the women were going, tell me more. Tell me why I want to learn more. And Paul's like, ladies, shh, shh. Go home and ask them. Make them pony up to the plate. Make them take authority. Make them go home and study for themselves how to give an answer rather than just coming here making some priests give the answer for them. And today, men have let the wisdom of God go and they've stopped protecting God's wisdom over their house and their marriages are broken. They're hooked on pornography. They're chasing all kind of hell. They're wondering why their kids don't serve the Lord. But by God, the moment something goes, you know the Bible says you should submit to me. No, 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 no. The Bible says she submits to you because you're the protector of God's wisdom. But if you stop protecting his wisdom, she's going to chat with a snake because she's never going to shut up. She's either going to talk to a snake or talk to you. And both of you have the ability to lead where she needs to go. So Adam quit protecting. She started chatting it up with a serpent. So when Paul says, ladies, he's trying to get the men. We, we take it like women, be quiet. And we just assume there's some obnoxious woman that just won't shut up. Oh, God, obnoxious women. Women, I command you to keep silent in the church. And all the men are like, yes, finally. But my belief was, ladies, your husbands are weak-willed men. And the reason you're here asking questions to the priest who's reading it is because they refuse to learn the law of God to pass it down to the generation of their children. And you're desperate for it. Go home and ask them and make them give an answer and see if they can answer. I think my belief is that this. When men don't heed the original warning to protect God's wisdom and teach the incoming generation, the world becomes infested with sin. We do not have a sin problem in America. We have men who stopped protecting God's wisdom. They allowed pornography in the home, perversion in the home. They spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on their hobbies and their jobs and they feel good about themselves because they pay the bills and they provide for the family. You are not called just to provide. You were called to protect wisdom. 
Ladies, I love you. I don't mean this against you. We can't do it without you. Fellas, it's time to step up to the plate, become men, lead your home, lead your children, stop demanding the woman to do it, stop asking her to read the Bible at night to the kids, dust yourself up, get yourself off, quit making her be the one that goes, I just think we should pray with the children. You take authority and begin to lead the wisdom. And in my 33 years of doing pastoring, I have never ever met a woman that said I just feel like my man's too close to God he prays for me he knows all my needs serves me comes home does the dishes like I can't even get him to stop serving me he just he prays for me at night lays hands on me I hear him praying in the spirit most women are in there slaving while he's smoking a stogie watching football She's in there trying to journal what God's showing her because he hadn't even remotely had a conversation about God's wisdom. Because if he did, he hadn't even spent enough time with God to know what his wisdom is. And I think that's the problem with the American church. The men quit protecting the wisdom of God. And we've gone really weird. Now, I will tell you, when a church operates in the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God is the guard, you will find women who are anointed and preach, men who are anointed in preaching because they're all in the wisdom of God. And weird as it may sound, I know this sounds very chauvinistic, God just always picked them in. It wasn't because he liked men better than women. Because he couldn't even pick a man without a woman. Because it's the only way another man can come. But he picked 12 men. It doesn't mean that the women, if you read it, it the women and children followed too. And in the, when they wandered in the, in the wilderness, it wasn't the women that got circumcised. It was the men. And it was the men that God said, you, until the 22-year-olds die off, you're all just going to stay out here until the men die off. So as weird and chauvinistic as it feels that God likes men better than women, it's not that he likes men better than women. He holds the men accountable to move his wisdom to the next generation. And when men do that, women follow. And when a man is declaring wisdom and a woman is serving beside him in submission to that wisdom, they will multiply and do kingdom work. Their home will be blessed. Their kids will be blessed. Their future will be blessed. And both of them, Rob and I have been married 33 years. Here's the deal. Honest to God truth. We've never even had a conversation about submission. I've never had to sit down and say, woman. Because if I started the sentence with woman... I wouldn't be preaching Sunday. If I started the conversation, woman, I'd be done pastoring. I don't know who would be here, but it wouldn't be me. But in 33 years, she, this is the honest truth, we have never had a conversation of should she submit to me or not. You want to know why? Because this old boy, as weird as he is, with my little pouty ways and my fleshly time, I love the Lord I love his word. I chase after him. And I serve my wife. And by me serving my wife with God's wisdom, she and I become a team that never even have to have a conversation should she submit because she knows I adore the ground she walks on and I'm here to serve her because my first goal as a man was to tend the garden, cultivate the garden, and keep the warning. And when a man tends his wife, cultivates his wife, and holds the warning of the kingdom, that woman will follow him to the ends of the earth. That's my opinion. I don't know if I'm right or not. but I... So the first is the boundary of God's expectation. Everybody serves, everybody works, and everybody protects. The second boundary is the boundary of his wisdom. This is just my opinion, but I encourage you to study it, though. It may make sense of why God picked 12 men and women did follow. Everyone is accountable, but God holds men responsible. Men, you're going to stand before God one day. I don't know what he's going to say to the ladies, but I know what he's going to say to us. Did you do what I called you to do from the beginning of time? Husbands, if your marriage is a wreck, 
I can guarantee you it's not her personality, her Jezebel spirit, her ways. It's that somewhere in the marriage you probably forgot to cultivate her, tend to her, listen to her, care for her, nurture her, and let her know that she above all else is loved, cherished, and prized because she is the garden that God has put you in. And my job as a husband is to guard the wisdom of that over my home. And so therefore, I will be held accountable. Just to show you how powerful this is. I don't have time to teach it. We're running short. It's why the Bible says that if a man cannot manage his home, he should not lead in the church. What? I thought all I needed was to be anointed. Uh, No. If you can't manage your home, watch men. Men, keep your mouth shut. So if you can't manage your home, you're not leading in my house. So in other words, what God, here's men. Ladies, keep your mouth shut and just learn in submission. Here's God. Men, if you don't take authority of my wisdom, shut your mouth. So we can sit here and tell the ladies to shut up, but when you turn around, there's one higher than you telling you to hush your mouth. Because we're all called to tend the garden. That's just my opinion. I preached a lot and I'm sorry. I thought it was good though. Genesis 3, back to the end. We'll end right here. So the Lord God, here we go, banished him from the Garden of Eden and sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way of the Tree of Life. So though we don't know the geographical place of the garden, we do know that whatever it was, he was sent out from it And there obviously was a way in and a way out because he put an angel, a cherubim, and a flaming sword so they couldn't get back in. So I don't know how big it was. I'm going to give you my my opinion. So, So after they left, God stations an angel in the orange to the east. Here's where it gets really interesting. It's a whole teaching in itself, but I'm going to be quick. So when Cain murders Abel, Cain leaves the Lord's presence and sandaled in the land of Nod where? He goes east of Eden. So whatever's about to happen, you're going to see a a principle. It's a good study for you if you like to study deeper. There's a principle where once the original sin happens with Adam, who forgets to protect God's wisdom, God boots him out of the garden, stations an angel at the east, and from that point, humans begin to go east. Now, the further east they go, the more wicked they get. I'll show you what happens to them. Canaan, this is Noah's son, was of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Gergesites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zermorites, Hamathites, and the Canaan clans eventually spread out. The entire territory of Canaan extended from Sidon to the north to Gerar and to Gaza in the south and east as what? And east as far as Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah, the the story of the city we know is to be the, the worst of the worst. That city was established in the east from where I believe the Garden of Eden obviously was. So here it says, And there came a time where the people of the world, Genesis 11, just to show you as they go, they spoke the same language and the same words, and the people migrated which direction? They migrated to the east, to the land of Babylonia, and that's where the Tower of Babel is. This is just an opinion. But I like my opinion. I'm not all too wondering if the original Garden of Eden did not sit right over the town of where Jerusalem would be and the king himself would come sit and rule and reign one day as the tree of life. And I'm wondering if this is why after the flood, because look, if, if what the Bible says, the moment Cain leaves, everybody begins to go east. Well, if I put... If I put it way down in the bottom like we had it before, if I put it down here in the bottom corner where I had it before, down there by the, you know, Qatar and all of that. But my thinking was this. What, this is a what if. And this is kind of what I'm inclined to think, a whole Bible. What if the original Garden of Eden, because, well, now there's the Euphrates and, the, and all that and the Tigris and all. Yeah, yeah, but that's pre-flood. 
So whatever happened after the flood, we can't assume that rivers didn't change or new rivers form or Noah didn't remember, hey, there was a Tigris, maybe this is it because they don't all exist. Here's a thought. What if the original garden sat where the city of Jerusalem is? What if the original tree of life sat where the temple mount is? What if the original tree of life is the throne room of God where God will come down and sit in the millennial kingdom? And when they send, God stationed an angel to the east which is the direction that Joshua is going to have to come back over to take the land over Jericho from the, from the east to come over. And Sodom and Gomorrah is to the east. And the Tower of Babel sits all the way to the east. So that my belief is, what if God put the Garden of Eden in the original place where the city of the king would be, Jesus Christ himself, the second, the last Adam, the second man, he is the tree of life. And when the flood just annihilated everything and the cherubim is gone and the sword is gone and the tree of life is gone and the garden is gone, I just don't think it ever ended in God's mind. Because what about a little bitty city of Jerusalem in the middle of the Middle East would cause such a, a hoo-ha of people fighting over it. Why would Jerusalem become the seat of his eternal kingdom? Because I kind of believe God never forgot where his original planting was, where the first Adam was put, where the bride will rule and reign with him. So it doesn't shock me at all that maybe God just stuck the garden right there with Adam and Eve and then the other eternal kingdom comes but the king sits on a throne as the tree of life with his bride beside him ruling from Jerusalem. And maybe, this is my opinion, maybe all of that, the Garden of Eden teaches us that God set a boundary to the access of life and everything else, regardless of how impressive, is just death. That's my thinking. And it's my thinking that perhaps get outside of the little VBS picture of a little garden with a tree, it seems kind of strange that by the time Moses comes or Abraham, God takes him up to a mountain and says, look at all of this. From this boundary, what? This is my thinking. He picks Abraham. Floods already happened. There's no tree of life. There's no garden. There's no cherubim. There's no sword. He brings a dude, an idol worshiper named Abram, sends him up on a mountain and says, look this way. Okay? Look that way. <laughs> look up. <laughs> you see this land? And we'll give it to you for a possession. What if God was setting, telling us, I, I don't know, but I'm inclined to believe it. What if when he was showing Abraham the boundaries of the promised land that God was showing him in the spiritual world what Eden used to look like. And from that corner to that corner to that corner to that corner, I'm going to give it back to you, buddy. And you're going to rule and reign. And it's why as we get on into the Old Testament, everybody fights, everybody's ticked off, everybody wants that land, everybody's still fighting over it today. Go figure. Here's the final thoughts. We'll pull it out. Back to Genesis 3, verse 24. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword. The typical is the angels holding the sword, right? So a cherubim waving a sword. The way I think it translates is God had both. He had a cherubim, but then he just had a flaming sword going back and forth. My belief is the reason it was a flaming sword is because God was going to show us that to keep him out of Egypt, he was going to use his word. And his word was the sword of the Spirit. So I believe God stationed a cherubim in his word, and his word went back and forth. You will not get life. Not here. Not this way. Now here's what's interesting about the back and the forth. By the time Jesus comes, and that sword is going back and forth, back and forth, and that sword, I believe, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And the Word of God is Jesus in the flesh. That means that Jesus, the warning of the angel, is standing here, turn back. 
And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is waving back and forth, reminding us there is a warning, but there also will come life. Because by the time the Word shows up by the Holy Spirit and Jesus steps on the scene, this is weird, Jesus comes on the scene, his first sermon, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, there's the warning, and believe. So, the cherubim is sitting here and the sword of the Spirit. Repent, believe. Repent, believe. Repent. Why repent? Because everybody's in the east and they need to turn back. Repent. You're all going east. Believe. Repent. You're all going east. Turn back. Believe. Repent. So by the time he shows up and says, repent, he's talking to a humanity that from the start of time has been running from the presence of God. And that's what repentance means. Turn back from the east and head home. You've been going east your whole life. Come home and believe in me. And when you do, you shall find life. Here's the final conclusion. This is my belief of what the Garden of Eden was. It was a boundary of God's expectations. Everybody serves and works and protects. It was a boundary of his wisdom Everybody's accountable to it. Men are responsible to take it to the next generation. And it's the boundary of God's life. Every one must repent and believe. So when we talk about what was God trying to teach us about the kingdom, here's what he was trying to teach me. That he has expectations for life. His wisdom is life. And he controls the door of life. This is the garden. He has expectations for life. You mean you got to work for it. He's the wisdom of life, meaning do it his way. And he's the door to life. You're not going to get in any other way. Here's what's interesting. By the time Jesus shows up, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There is no other way to it but me. I am the word and the sword that was in front of the Garden of Eden. I am the tree that was in Eden. I am the wisdom of Eden. I am the wisdom of all that God had. And I've come on planet earth as a human to show you the way to have life. I am the truth. There is not up for opinion. And I am the way to get there. I'm the door by how you get there. So my belief is when God planted a garden, he planted a garden not because he thought Adam needed a really cute home. He planted a garden because he wanted to give us an object lesson of the life of Christ. The life of Christ is the expectation of God, what's demanded of us. He fulfills it perfectly as a human. Number two, he is the wisdom of God and shows us how to live life trusting the ways of God. And he also is the door to life. If any man but believe, you shall be saved. Let me bless you.